Morning. I forgot to turn my power pack on last service. I'm not perfect. No perfect people allowed. Um, John Hamm, whenever he gets up here, that's what he says, no perfect people allowed. And that's kind of like, I guess, a policy in the church. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing, I think. Um, and I think that John's talking like that, I don't know how this actually happened, but it turned into a series for Elvin. And uh, Elvin's been talking about no perfect people allowed for the last number of weeks. And uh, it's got me thinking. And um, Elvin had me, like I was on worship team last week, and Elvin had me come and stand here, and he told all of you that I was going to um, speak today. And um, he, it's not quite the way he said it happened, because it sounds like I came into his office and said, hey, Elvin, can I preach? And I don't know why anybody would want to do that. But uh, I, I've been thinking about this series... And um, I've been thinking about so much of uh, our failings and so much of the things that make us not perfect people, um, that tends to get dwelled on. But there's a lot that happens after we realize that we're imperfect. And uh, with that in mind, I've used the title, After the Rooster Crows, and if you've been in church for any part of your life at all, I think you might know where that comes from. And uh, it's, it's taken from Matthew 26 and some of the other Gospels too. And it's after Jesus was arrested and uh, Peter is kind of hanging out in a courtyard and he's recognized as a follower of Christ and he denies it. And after he denies it, the rooster crows. It's kind of like a symbol that what Jesus foretold would happen, happened. And this situation, the way I see it, is throughout history, it's been an example of one of the greatest human screw-ups ever. And uh, I picked this painting is 600 years old, this painting, and it's done by a guy named Carvaccio, and it depicts the uh, denial of Peter. And uh, it kind of sets up what it might have felt like. And I, and I want to just uh, actually read the passage, uh, and I thought this painting kind of set it up fairly well. So let's read that together. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him. You were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know that man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you were one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began 
to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus that he'd spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Pretty serious infraction. (laughs) To be one of Jesus' closest associates, one of the inner circle, and he denies that he knew him. And I find that disturbing, but encouraging at the same time. And I'm not really critical of Peter, because I'm ashamed to say that I can see myself doing this very easily. And there have probably been times in my life when my actions have denied visibly that I knew Christ. Peter, actually, uh, there were lots of times in Scripture where Peter kind of had screw-ups. Maybe not this bad, but there were times when he acted on impulse. Before his brain was in gear, he acted impulsively. Like, remember the time when he tried to walk on the water? There again, I'm not really critical of him because no one else had the courage to step out of the boat, right? He actually uh, managed to stand on top of the water until he felt the fear, and then he sank. My theory is that that's what happened that night in the courtyard. He felt fear. Earlier that night, also, Peter... They were in the Garden of Gethsemane and remember what happened there. They came to arrest Jesus and Peter drew his sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Then a few hours later, this happens. The whole narrative of Peter in Scripture seems to culminate with that one event where Jesus denied Peter denied Jesus not just once but three times and then the rooster crowed. Peter must have felt like a complete failure. The biblical account of the story says that uh, Peter wept bitterly. I don't know if you can relate to that. I'm not really a crier. Um, I get emotional. I've got grandkids and uh, Sometimes things they do bring me to tears. Sometimes even a Christmas Canadian tire commercial can bring tears to my eyes. But I'm not really a crier. But on the few times that I've lost it, it's major. I can't stop it, and I'm out of control. It's usually triggered by a significant event, like a kid getting married, or a big loss, or in this case, a catastrophic failure. There's no holding back. The dam bursts and it's out of control. There's snorting, and there's ugly crying, and there's sobbing, and your shoulders are heaving, and you're beyond the point of caring who's listening, who's watching. I think that's what happened to Peter. I've told my story here before, Uh, eight years ago, as Alvin said. So I'll try not to repeat myself too much. 
But I think if you heard that story, you'd know that I had my own moment when the rooster crowed. Uh, for me, it started when two Calgary police detectives showed up at my door. That was about 11 years ago. And uh, they were there investigating the fact that my employer had lodged a complaint because they were missing several hundred thousand dollars. Well, I didn't have it. I didn't have it because I spent it. At the time, I was working for a multinational corporation. I was at a, a director position, so I was pretty high up. I had about 400 people reporting up to me. And uh, all of these people weren't loyal employees. As a matter of fact, some of the meetings that I had were more like lynch mobs than they were corporate events. Um, many of these guys figured that they knew better than anybody else how the company should be run. And I was the enemy. But it was my job to bring them into line and to convince them otherwise. I was the corporate villain. I remember trips to Edmonton, for example, where I had 10 managers and I'd, and I'd meet with them at a conference center and I would feel, I'd leave the meeting feeling completely attacked and misunderstood and alone. These are not the things that I climbed the corporate ladder for. And uh, lots of men in my position probably would have gone out and instead of going to the hotel to prepare for the next day's meeting, they would have gone to a bar. Well, that never was my problem. But that's not to say I didn't have problems. I did. My issue was that uh, after the meeting was over, I'd go shopping. A little bit of retail therapy. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. That was my motto. And I'd buy something that made me feel better about myself. Maybe a suit or two, or maybe a guitar or three, maybe even a vintage car. So the longer I was with the company, the longer this problem escalated. And for several years, I was out of control with my spending. And even though I was making an executive salary, my finances were quickly outdistanced by my spending habits. Case in point, I could fill lots of slides with the stuff that I had. Probably shouldn't be doing a trivia question, but that little blue car in, in the corner, it's pretty rare. If you can tell me what it is, maybe I'll buy you a chocolate bar. Not now, but later. <laughs> so before too long, I'd used up whatever cash I had, and uh, I started taking cash off my credit cards and I maxed them out and then I applied for more credit cards and I maxed them out. And uh, I was in a situation where my credit card bills were so outrageous that I couldn't even pay the 2% minimum payment when I, got, when I got the bill at the end of the month. 
And no one knew about this. It was my secret. Not the corporation, not my wife, not my family. And at that point, I should have humbled myself and I should have owned up to the situation and got some help in dealing with this kind of trauma. But I stubbornly kept my retail therapy hidden from everybody. So up until that point, my behavior was disturbing and financially dangerous, but behavioral addictions aren't actually illegal. Misappropriating money to fund them, however, that is illegal, that's called stealing, and that's, that's what happened. Uh, see, in my role with the company, I'd been entrusted with a pretty big signing authority, <clears throat> and unwilling to humble myself and get help, I devised a plan. And I made, my, made the foolish decision to help myself to some of the company's money. So what I did was I actually incorporated a company that did nothing, it was a phantom company. And I went into one of these places in Calgary that was a storefront that had mailing addresses so I could have um, a, a letterhead and an invoice that looked like I actually had an office somewhere. And then I set up a bank account for this phantom company. And then I would set up false invoice and I'd send it through the electronic accounts payable system. <clears throat> and a couple of weeks later, it would uh, find its way to my inbox and I'd approve it and a couple of weeks later, I'd get a check. Pretty slick. And I never intended for this to be a long-term solution because I knew in my mind that it was unsustainable. I also knew it was wrong. But I did that over 50 times. And that really bothered me. Um, I was living a double life because I only knew what was going on. And um, I think I intended to just buy myself some time. Okay, I'm gonna do this, and then my wife and I are gonna have a serious chat, and then we're gonna go find some counseling, and I'm gonna pay the money back, all good. That never happened. And before long, I was into the company for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Unbelievable. So I decided that something had to change. I wasn't sleeping well at night, and uh, the double life just gave me more stress. So in the spring of 2009, I drove to Vancouver, and I talked to the president of our, uh, of our company, and uh, I resigned my position. And I was able to set up my own company and I began a brand new career as a, as a project manager, on a freelance basis. And this is one of the projects in Calgary that I was involved in. And soon, I was making even more money than I was with the, the corporation. And I deluded myself into believing that God was honoring my decision to change my ways and forfeit the security of a 25-year career. Of course, that isn't what happened at all. Because <laughs> I was still making massive payments to carry the debt that I'd incurred. I just wasn't stealing to pay, them, pay it anymore. And my wife still knew nothing 
of the debt that I had incurred in our financial situation. So ceasing the illegal activity was only part of, part of the solution. Then these two detectives, they showed up at my door a little while after I left the company. And I began to see the shadow of a rooster over my shoulder. That day, I was charged with fraud. And uh, after a very long day, I was released on bail. And I hired a lawyer to try to keep me out of jail. But that wasn't the way things turned out. And uh, in April of 2011, I was sentenced to 18 months. And uh, that's where all that happened. And right after the judge issued his verdict, I was taken into custody immediately. Didn't get to say goodbye to any of my family or anything. And I was taken down into the holding cells in the basement of the courthouse. And there I sat and waited for the court schedule to be finished. And then I was uh, shackled, and I was handcuffed, and I was put in a, a sheriff's vehicle, which is essentially a cage on wheels, and I was taken here. And after several hours of intake, including body searches and other humiliating procedures, I arrived at Unit 4 in the remand center. And it was about 10 o'clock, just before lights out, and I walked alone to the cell, and it buzzed electronically, and I opened it up, and I met my cellmate, and I crawled up into the top bunk. And there, in this place, I was alone with my thoughts for the first time in a while. And my mind started to slow down, and I think it had probably been a year or more since I'd had to face the thought of any consequence for what had happened in the last few years. But there I was that night. And uh, I remember thinking that it was probably the worst day of my life. An overwhelming flood of emotion came over me. And I heard the rooster crow. And I wept bitterly. And I don't know how long my meltdown lasted. I probably fell asleep. But in any event, I woke up and uh, it was the middle of the night and it was eerily quiet in the cell. Yet, I knew I wasn't alone. And I'm not talking about my cellmate sleeping in the lower bunk. It was something else. And I know now that it was God's presence through his Holy Spirit with me in that cell that night. In many ways, God was more real to me at that moment than he had been for many years. That was my fault, not his. But it was like he was right there in the cell with me that night saying, are you done now? Because I've been waiting a long time to show you what I want to do. So in that moment, it became clear to me that in spite of my huge failure, even in that situation, I had choices. I could make it about me 
and I could get mad at God for putting me in this place and separating me from my family, making me experience a dangerous scenario, or I could accept my consequences and continue to trust God to redeem the situation for good. I'm pretty convinced that that's what Peter ultimately did too because it appeared to me that his darkest day was also the beginning of a transformation. And that's what I desperately wanted too. So there in that 8 by 12 cinder block cell, on the first day of my incarceration, I had my own transformational conversation with God. And I told him that I wasn't going to blame him for my situation. And that I would accept my consequences as justice. See, God forgives but he lets us endure the consequence because that's really what makes us learn. And then I told him that I'd continue to serve him any way he wanted, even if that meant serving him in jail. And that's really where it all began. Pretty soon I had a new routine. And the routine was that when the cells were unlocked in the morning, about an hour before breakfast, I could go out into a common area like this one where there is a place to sit. And you can see that there's no soft surfaces here. <laughs> and uh, when there's a hundred guys in there screaming and yelling and, and all manner of pandemonium, it's a pretty noisy and unsettling place to be. So I desperately wanted to get out there when nobody else was there. And that was first thing in the morning. So I'd go out and I'd sit at one of those tables with my Bible and I would try to read and I'd try to pray and have a quiet time. And eventually, guys would wake up and they'd start coming out and they'd see me sitting there and they'd be like, what are you doing? What are you reading? Do you believe that stuff? And it would turn into a conversation and then the table would be full. And then 10 or 15 minutes later, more guys would be standing. And uh, eventually, um, we'd be having Bible discussions. <laughs> and that seemed a little unlikely, but that's what happened. And uh, that grew into um, me being asked to participate in an AA group. And I I've never had problems with, with alcohol. And uh, if you know anything about AA, there's 12 steps and over half of them have to deal with a higher power. And these guys had no clue on how to deal with that, and they were trying to work through the steps, but they wanted somebody to talk to them about the higher power. So there I was, not a drinker, in jail, in an AA group, talking about God. Go figure. These guys, they weren't scholars. I've since learned that most of the men in prison haven't even finished high school. Some of them haven't even finished elementary school. Even the Bibles that were available for them to read, they were children's versions. So I took my cue from that, and when I talked to them, I just told them Bible stories. I didn't try to preach at them, because I certainly don't have that capability. But I told them Bible stories. I told them about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and I told them about 
the woman who was caught in adultery that the Pharisees wanted to stone when Jesus said, you who is without sin, you can cast the first stone. And I told them about David and Bathsheba. If you think about it, it's outcasts, hookers, and correct, corrupt men in power. Perfect context. One day, I worked outside gardening, and I came in late in the afternoon, and there was a group of guys waiting for me. And these guys were all in one of these groups that I was with. And they were concerned about this guy named Lenny. And Lenny was a really tall indigenous kid, probably in his mid-twenties. Lenny was getting out the next day. He was going to be released on parole. And he was really anxious. I couldn't relate to that. But again, I've learned since that many men who are released are very fearful because they don't have good support systems to be released into, no job. Families probably turned their back on them. So they go back to their old social contacts, their old addictions and stuff like that, and they end up back in jail. So Lenny was scared. And it was very important to Lenny that he gets to pray with the group the night before he goes out, the night before he got up, or at least to parole. So he, uh, we sat there. There's this place out in the, in the courtyard where we kind of just sat on the floor and did our thing. And that was the night I told them about David and Bathsheba. And we went through Psalm 51 together. And then we moved into a prayer time. And Lenny asked if, if he could pray. And I misunderstood him at first because I thought he meant, okay, let's all pray now. You guys pray for me. But that's not what Lenny had in mind. Lenny wanted to pray. And the first clue for that came when I was sitting beside him and he took in this huge breath to fill his lungs. And it was noisy. It was almost like a gasp. And uh, I looked over at Lenny and he and he used that breath to utter a prayer. I can't repeat the prayer to you because it was profanity-laced. <laughs> and he, I'm going to say screwed up, but you know that that's not the actual phrase he used. And, and I'm going to say woman, but you know that he used a much less complimentary term. But he said, he let all his breath out, Oh, God! I've screwed up my life. I'm sorry. I'm going home tomorrow. I don't want to fight with my woman anymore. Please help me. Never heard a prayer like that before. And I realized that my eyes were welling up and I had tears starting to run down my face because I actually felt like I was on holy ground. And in that moment, I realized that God didn't care that Lenny dropped F-bombs in his prayer because God was looking at Lenny's heart. He saw Lenny's need and his cry for help. 
And I don't know who was impacted more by that time, Lenny or me. These days, I think it was me because experiences like this changed me. And I realized that God was giving me a new calling, a new identity. It was like I'd been following a 30-year detour and I'd finally found out who it was I was supposed to be. So telling Bible stories in jail has led to a full-time calling. It took a while. I think God takes his time because the moment has to be right. But five years after that, I was brought into a program at Prairie College that I now lead. And it's called the Prison Bible Encounter Program. And I'll just, I'll give you my elevator speech. Uh, it's, it's the first and only program of its kind in Canada. And uh, incarcerated men are given scholarships to be part of a college uh, level biblical certificate program. That means we take profs from the college we go into federal prison and we teach them in a classroom, the same program that students are studying at the college. Since 2016, over 100 inmates in Alberta have taken all or part of this program. And this year, our 100th anniversary, we saw the first four students graduated from the program. And these guys have over 300 credit hours and a certificate in Bible. And I don't think it's any coincidence that this event, which is historical in my mind, lined up with our 100th anniversary. And I just have a little clip to show you kind of the and excitement. Whoop, that's not the And right today one. we that's are it. absolutely thrilled that we celebrate the first graduates of the Prison Encounter Program. So to our persevering Jesus lovers, Brad, David, Dwayne, who is with us today, and John. We honor you. You are the first to graduate from Prairie's Prison Bible Encounter Program. Thank you for leading the way. And we expect that the other three will be watching this. So let's make this a really great ovation for them. Congratulations. You can stay seated. But I've got this picture up here because um, these are actually a couple of our students. Now, if I showed you a picture of this guy 30 years ago, you would not know he's the same guy because you can see Christ in his face. He's been transformed. Both of those guys have. Uh, but that's not the only transformation that's happened. That funny looking guy on the right hand side there has been transformed too. And uh, I want to move into, I want to tell you a story that kind of illustrates my transformation in a more personal way. Um, as you saw by the sneak preview of the next slide, you know that one of my passions is guitar. 
And I play it up here fairly regularly, and I play it lots of other places too. And I've played guitar since about I was about 12. And about 2001 or 2000 or Y2K or whatever it was, I wanted to have a custom-made guitar. And it seems kind of vain looking back at it now after what I've been through, but just bear with me. There was a renowned luthier that lived about, a, or had a shop about a half an hour from where I was living at the time. And he agreed to do a custom project for me. So I went to his workshop and I actually picked all of the wood that he was gonna use to make the guitar. And he had uh, like 30 year old naturally aged pieces of alder and he had this beautiful bird's eye maple that I used for the neck. And then I had the electronics handmade and custom wired and uh, it looked like that. But I also had um, a custom headstock and it looks kind of cheesy now but we're going back 20 years or whatever. But you can see on the very end there, it says uh, Golden Eagle by Gord. So there was no mistaking whose guitar this was. There was no mistaking who had input into its creation. It was me. And uh, that headstock identified it as my guitar. And I added to my collection over the years, but this was always the core of my collection. But then when 2011 hit, and I needed to raise some cash to hire a lawyer. Um, I needed to liquidate. And it seemed appropriate that I also get rid of signs of my former extravagance. So uh, the Golden Eagle had to go along with a bunch of other stuff that I had. So fast forward to after I was granted my full release and God miraculously provided a home and jobs for us uh, here in Three Hills. And uh, in 2015, I was actually able to pay back all of that money that I took from my employer. And by that time, instead of buying high-end boutique guitars, I'd learned how to build my own guitars and I was assembling and, and playing guitars that, that I built. And one day I was looking through Kijiji for, for parts for a project that I, was, that I was working on, and I saw something familiar. It was the Golden Eagle. It was on Kijiji. And the owner obviously didn't know its true value because he'd uh, modified it a little bit. And I knew that it was my guitar because it still had one letter, still had the E. And he'd taken some of the electronics out, but the body was still in, you know, still in pristine condition. So um, it was in Edmonton. And uh, the really cool thing is that he only wanted 200 bucks for it and it was worth 20 times that. So I, Chris Lowen actually was in Edmonton at the time, and I sent him some money, and he went and bought it from the guy. So it was mine again. And I set my sights on restoring it to what it was intended to be when I created it. I fixed the damage, and I renamed it. 
And this time I named it after the guy who actually built it and gave him the credit. That's his company. And I've been using it as an instrument of worship ever since. But more importantly, it's become a symbol of my transformation, my redemption. God gave my guitar back to me in much the same. He repurposed my life after the rooster crowed. There's dark moments in everybody's life. Moments when it seems like everything is lost. Like in the remand center for me. There's a point of no return. At least that's what you think. There's times of bitter weeping. When the rooster crows like it did in Peter's story. But the Peter story didn't end there, did it? Peter went on to preach a risen Christ. And just as Jesus prophesied, Peter is a huge part of the foundation of the Church of Christ. In the early days, Peter Peter preached sermons, like at the beginning of Acts, where literally thousands of people came into the faith. This This is what they said of Peter and his friends after that event. They said, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, Peter, he wasn't limited by his lack of education or training. That's hugely encouraging to me because, folks, I'm a high school dropout. And he wasn't limited by the failures in his life. Again, hugely encouraging to me. More likely, he was shaped by those failures. The thing that gave him the confidence to become who he was meant to be was, says it right here, having been with Jesus. He boldly defended Christ to the authorities and he was eventually martyred for his stand. And when it was time for him to be put to death, Peter refused to be crucified the same way that Jesus was. He was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified the same way Christ died. Those are pretty humble words for somebody who once argued with his fellow disciples about who was the greatest. But Peter finally got it. And he lived up to the new name, the new identity that Jesus gave him. Because you remember, Jesus gave him a new name too. It was Peter, the rock. That became my prayer. And my prayer for each of you. If you're in one of those moments where you can hear a rooster crowing, or maybe you fear one is going to start crowing at some point, take courage because I've learned that that's actually when God does his best work. When you've come to the end of yourself and you don't know how anything will ever be the same again, hold on because the story isn't over. If you let him, he will repurpose you. And not just repurpose you, he'll use every mistake you've made 
every misstep and every bad decision, and he'll use it for his glory and for his kingdom. From where you are, it might seem impossible, but I promise you, God is in the redemption business. Whatever you're struggling with and whatever you're hiding, whatever is crushing you at this moment, leave it at the cross. He will reaffirm your identity. Just like he did with Peter and just like he did with me, nothing is wasted with God. Our failure as followers of Christ doesn't cancel our identity in Christ. I'm going to say that again, and if you've got a pen, write it down. It's the point of my whole message. Our failure as followers of Christ doesn't cancel our identity in Christ. If you'd have asked me when I got arrested, where are you going to be in 11 years now? I never thought I'd be standing here talking like I have talked this morning. I just could not see that God had any use for me anymore and I thought I'd blown it, but I was wrong. I have a new identity in Christ. I just want to leave you with that thought. The rooster crows at the dawn of a new day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the redemptive work that you can do power to raise your son from the cross and power to redeem our failures. We're so thankful, Father, and we just lay this before you and we ask that you would move with us from this day forward into recommitting our lives to you and help us to be faithful to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.